We are jumping into the book of Acts this morning. I'm sure that most of you were thinking we're going to be doing another one of those Christmas sermons <laughs> today. And uh, if you want to hear something like that, then I guarantee you on Thursday night you will. Uh, but for now, we are going to continue in our study of the book of Acts. And we are going to be in chapter 16 of this morning. Now, just remember that the things that are going on now are on the heels of the Council of Jerusalem and the decisions and, uh, and policies that were established by the church at that point. Uh, we know that Paul has been on one missionary journey with... Uh, with Barnabas, uh, and we know that, uh, that Barnabas and Paul have parted ways at this point. We don't know exactly why, but there obviously was some very strong disagreement between the two of them. So Barnabas went on his own missionary, second missionary journey, and the apostle Paul went on his as well. This time he's accompanied by a guy named Silas. So re let's read... Uh, Read, let's just read. Paul came also to Derbe, and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for, for observance the decisions that had been reached by the, the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem, the Council of Jerusalem that we just finished studying. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in number daily. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct uh, voyage from Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman column, colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we were outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come to my house and stay. I'm going to warn you, we're probably not going to get to the end of that uh, that portion that I just read 
this morning. If not, then we will pick up with it uh, next, uh, not next Sunday. Next Sunday's Christmas. Mike is preaching. I'm not going to be preaching next Sunday for the first time in quite a while. <laughs> uh, and uh, so anyway, it would be nice for me to be able to spend that service with my wife and family, which is a rare thing. Uh, so thank you, Mike, for being there for your pastor. He appreciates you. Uh, okay, so the second missionary journey, or so-called missionary journey of Paul, begins by leaving Assyrian Antioch. And I just, I, I've re- said this before in our study recently, and that is that Paul had done ministry uh, before this, but when we think about the ministry of Paul, we always just think about those three missionary journeys and and that sort of thing. And So technically speaking, Paul's already been doing this. This is not the beginning of Paul's ministry. Paul's been in this ministry now for some time. It's just a continuation of his uh, ministry. This time he's accompanied by a fellow named Silas. Uh, if you remember, he was one of the guys who brought the, uh, the letter uh, written by the Council of Jerusalem uh, to the brothers in Syrian Antioch. And, and we don't know if Paul knew him before this, but obviously they bec- became acquainted uh, at what we call the Council of Jerusalem, if not before that. He's probably the same person who's referred to often in the epistles of Paul uh, by the name of Silvanus, which is a Latinized version or a Roman version of Silas. So he's someone who will be with Paul from this point on for a good bit of the rest of his ministry. So they leave. And they go through Syria and Cilicia, and they're traveling north and then west, further into Asia Minor, reaching the cities that, uh, that Paul and Barnabas had, had visited before, some of those Derby and Lystras we've mentioned before. In Lystra, Paul came to know a young fellow by the name of Timothy. <clears throat> whom he would recruit to join his mission team. And Timothy would become a very important part or element in Paul's uh, continued ministry all the way up to the very end. There's a sense in which Timothy would become a spiritual son of the Apostle Paul. Paul, as far as we know, had no physical children at all. So sometimes it's helpful to think of Timothy and perhaps some others as basically being the very children of the Apostle Paul. This is how much he loved them. This is how much he cared about them. He would be with Paul all the way up to Paul's Roman imprisonment. He would be a recipient of two of the epistles of Paul that we have included in the New Testament canon. Timothy was a mixed breed. His mother was a Jew, but his father was a Gentile, a Greek. His mother's name was Eunice, mentioned specifically in 2 Timothy 1.5. His grandmother's name was Lois. 
It sounds rather weird or unusual that we see something like this taking place immediately after the Council of Jerusalem. Because the Council of Jerusalem did a number of things, but one of them was de-emphasize and basically declare that it was not necessary for Gentiles to be circumcised. Now we have Paul circumcising a man who is a half-breed. He's half-Jewish and he's half-Gentile. It sounds a little bit surprising given what has just recently taken place. Why did Paul insist on doing this? We, I, no one knows. We don't know for certain. What was Paul's rationale in this? But I would imagine it came down to this. Is his anticipation was that his ministry was going to continue very much as it had been before, and that is his principal and primary audience was the Jewish people. That was shift to some degree. But for now, Paul evidently feared or assumed that if people knew that Timothy was half Jewish and was uncircumcised, that it would cause issues. Just remember now, that at this point, that Paul is primary, principally ministering to Jewish people. And not only that, you need to understand something. It's not something that Paul forced on Timothy. He didn't have five big strapping guys hold him down and take care of business. Timothy willfully submitted to this. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and they increased in number daily, 16.5. One of the things that I hope, I pray that we get from our study of the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit was moving powerfully. Everywhere that Paul and Timothy and Silas and others went, that it's the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit and the moving of the Holy Spirit which is, is causing these mass conversions of both Jews and Gentiles to the Christian faith. They are only the Holy Spirit's mouthpiece. The church has expanded a great deal through the generations, through the centuries now. Has reached just about every people group in the world. That expansion is a product 
of two things working together in unison with one another, both being guided by the Holy Spirit. One of those is the teaching ministry of particular individuals like Paul and Barnabas and now Timothy. Those whom the Lord has set apart as pastors, preachers, evangelists, whatever you want to call them. It's always been an effective part of the ministry of Christ in this world. But God also calls non-ordained people Let me say there's a sense in which God calls all non-ordained people to simply tell other people what they know and who it is they know. But I want to challenge us with this this morning. That is, this is fundamentally what we're talking about. is not the ministry of these people. We're talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit doing all of this. Just using people to accomplish it. It's the way that things have always worked. It's the way that things worked in the past. It's the way that things are working right now. It's the way that things will continue to work. But I want you to, to think about this this morning. Is, is that clergy, you know, professional people like me, we've had something to do with the expansion of the gospel in the world over the last 2,000 years. But who do you think has had more of an impact, preachers, pastors, teachers, or the people in the pews? I mean, as far as you go, my principal responsibility is to help teach you how to share your faith and to encourage you to do it. You are the workers. People look upon people like me as being the workers of the church. I am not a worker of the church. You are. It's always been pastors, teachers, and the people working together in unison with one another to yield the maximum impact, both working under the direction and guidance and power of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this. Who do you think has had the greatest impact upon the church in general for 2,000 years? Pastors, preachers, teachers, or people in the pews? Some of you think it's been pastors, preachers, teachers, and I would say you are dead wrong. Promise keepers. You've heard me use this example before, and I'm going to use it again this morning as an illustration. Because I, say, I think it says something that most people would not think. 
Remember Promise Keepers? That, that men's movement? We got involved in it. We, we sent groups from the church. We had like 25 or 30 people go to one of the Promise Keepers gatherings that took place down in St. Pete years ago. But my brother and I went to one later on. It was just my brother and I and Matthew, I think, went with us. Just the three of us went in, in Jacksonville. And, uh, and there was a, you know, they had an evangelist. Always the opening service of these meetings was an evangelistic thing. You know, it was evangelists who pre preached. And to illustrate what I'm telling you, to, to be the reality of things, this is the point he was trying to make that night. He said, okay, what I want is for everyone in this stadium, it was in a football stadium, to stand up who came to faith because they heard a particular sermon or they heard a pastor teaching a Sunday school lesson or something like that. That was the thing that brought you to saving faith in Christ Jesus. There was a handful of people that stood up. There were people who stood. But I bet it wasn't even 1%. He said, sit down. He ended that. He said, okay, now what I want is for everybody in this room to stand up who came to faith principally and primarily through the witness of a friend, an acquaintance, or a brother or sister or family member. And virtually everybody in the stadium stood. Doesn't that blow your mind? You are the most effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world, not me or people like me. Sharing your life with other people, sharing what you know with other people, you are what makes the difference. You are what has made the difference from the very beginning. And I want to remind us of something this morning, and that is this, this convergence is not up to you. It's up to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can change the fallen, broken human heart. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can bring someone to a real working, living knowledge that their sins have actually, even though they've been great, they have actually been completely and absolutely forgiven. Another thing that's kind of unique to this is even though Paul insisted that Timothy be circumcised, it seems, he did not encourage Gentile converts to be circumcised. In other words, they were having probably these big baptisms, you know, services and whatever took place, but they weren't having these big circumcision services. 
Thank you. <laughs> this makes it very clear that the Apostle Paul did not believe that every convert to Christianity needed to be circumcised. Only those who were Jewish and only those who were Jewish and desired to be. I don't think that they ran people down and held them down on the ground while people forcibly circumcised anybody. But again, we're talking about a situation here where, where, where uh, Silas was half Jew and half Gentile. That's the only reason any of this took place. We don't know for certain what Paul's thinking was about this. He doesn't reveal it to us. He doesn't come right out and say, why did I do this? Why did I insist that he do this or encourage him to do this? Logic, reasonable sense says this. is Paul knew that being circumcised would give Titus In St. Timothy, how Titus, more credibility among the Jews to whom they were principally and primarily ministering to at this point. I think one of the most important passages in Scripture that every Christian should be aware of is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 through 22, where Paul writes these words. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those outside the law, in other words, the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, and that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. In other words, Paul was very flexible to the particular circumstances he found himself in as he was ministering to a great variety of people. He did not minister to everyone exactly the way he did everybody else. In other words, Paul flexed as much as he could flex without stepping beyond where he needed to go. He would actually write these words in Galatians chapter 6, verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Uh, I don't know how many people here are familiar with Hudson Taylor's ministry. Very well noted ministry to China back in the 1800s. 
Uh, many of you don't even know this, I think. The, 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 there was a huge missionary movement that, that, that came out of Europe in the early 1800s where people were going all over the world. And Hudson Taylor was one, of, one person in that wave of missionaries that went. And he went to the Chinese. Eventually, he would adopt the dress and look of a Chinaman. You can read accounts of people that met him, and they would have swore up and down uh, and backwards that he actually was Chinese and not European, not English. He did that for a reason, and the reason was that he knew that it would open doors for him that otherwise would not have been. He was willing to give everything he could for the good of the ministry, even a sense of his own nationality. But again, I want to remind us of what I think probably one of the most important things here is we have to, to understand that it was the Holy Spirit that was moving. It was the Holy Spirit doing these things. Yes, he was using Paul and Timothy and Titus and others and Silas, but it was still the Holy Spirit's doing. We see this. A number of times in Paul's ministry where he tells us he tries to go somewhere, but the Holy Spirit forbidding from going. Understand that the Holy Spirit, it was as if the Holy Spirit had Paul's hand and he was leading him to all the places and people that he wanted him to encounter. And there were times when Paul determined to go somewhere, this is not the only time, but the, but the Holy Spirit said no. And sometimes the Holy Spirit said no. Sometimes the Holy Spirit said not yet. Because some of these places Paul will eventually go to. It's just not time yet. But the Holy Spirit guided Paul every step of his journeys. He brought every person into Paul's pathway that he intended to hear the message of the gospel. He's an almighty God. He's in control of absolutely everything. And let me just tell you, he does all kinds of things we can't understand. We can't comprehend it. And the worst thing we can do is to try to give people answers about questions that we just don't know. The only thing we do know is God is well-intentioned, and we know that God is in absolute control of everything. And he doesn't owe an answer to us for anything he does. It's his show. It's his thing. He just lets us be a part of it.
This is something that the missionaries in Uganda that I first met when I went there really understood very well. That when doors were open for them, it was God who opened the door. I've used this illustration a number of times before. I just, it really speaks of what we're talking about this morning. So if you're tired of hearing it, forgive me. <laughs> I can't come up with a better one. But I was talking with Robert Carr one day. He was one of the original, of the original group that went shortly after Jack Miller went to Uganda, one of the first mission groups that they sent. He and his family. Remarkable man. He and I were having a private conversation one day. And he told me this. He said, one day, you know, I don't know if it was the week before or three or four years or, you know, ten years before. I don't know how long he had been in Uganda. But he was going somewhere and he came across a path that led off into the rainforest a path that he was completely unfamiliar with he had no idea where it went he had no idea what was at the other end of it but he just felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to walk this path and let me tell you something and he was by himself. In a place like Uganda, most people would have said that was unwise. As a matter of fact, it was downright stupid. Because you have no clue what's on the other end of that path or what lies between here and the end of it. And it could be some really bad stuff for you. You could even die. But Robert said the Holy Spirit convicted him so much he could not refuse to go. <laughs> so he goes. And eventually became, he came upon a lone Ugandan man that he struck up a conversation with. And in that conversation, he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And then a man was convicted and came to faith in Jesus. Because of Robert Carr. No. Because of the Holy Spirit. God prodding you. Poking you. And encouraging you. Let me just tell you this. If you've never gone anywhere that surprised you, 
you probably are not living according to the will of God for your life. You nor I have the power to convert anyone, and that makes all the difference when you present the gospel to other people. How many people have you played a significant role in bringing salvation to? I mean, we all, we, we know this. We know that it's up to the Holy Spirit. It's not up to us. But the Holy Spirit does call us to play a part, to play a role in what he's doing, just like he was Paul and these other guys. I was curious the other day, so, you know, you, you, sometimes when I get curious about things, I just, just jump on the Internet and put some words in there and see what pops up. So I, I Googled the other day things that Christians fear most. We had a couple of articles. One of them was titled The Five Things Christians Fear Most. Shame. Foolishness. Ambiguity. Opposition. Pain. Another one entitled The Ten Things That Christians Fear Most. Financial loss. Pain. Illness. Death. The future. The past. The judgment, separation, evil, the devil. It is my opinion that both of these articles step right over something that should be obvious to everybody. That the greatest fear that most and I would say that every believer shares in to some degree is sharing Jesus Christ in his gospel with unbelievers. Fears they might say the wrong thing. Fears they won't say the right thing. Fears that the person will respond negatively perhaps even hatefully, angrily, and maybe even violently. Sometimes fear that they might push the other person in the other direction more because they say the wrong thing. Fear that they may not be liked by the person anymore. And they might completely disassociate from them. I'll be honest with you. I have not faithfully shared the gospel with as many people as I've been given opportunities to do that with. I haven't. Sometimes I've let my fears get the best of me. But I have shared the gospel with people. 
sometimes people I didn't know from Adam. Out of all of them, and, and I, it, it certainly it's hundreds of people. I'm not talking about, you know, 10 or 15 or whatever. I'm sure that I've shared, hundred, I've shared the gospel to every person in this room if you've been here before, pretty much. I've been knocking on people's doors, cold turkey. Out of all the people I've shared the gospel with, there's only two people that come to me, to come to mind, when I, that I would say responded to me in a very negative manner. The vast majority of them, whether they ever came to faith or not, they were at least polite enough to listen to what I had to say. And I'll say that one of those two reacted loudly and almost violently. I wasn't too sure they weren't going to smack me. Let me tell you, Christians that continue to refuse to spread the words are hurting, cheating, themselves out of one of the most precious blessings you will ever know. Being used in a powerful way by God in the calling of a fellow brother or sister in Christ into the fold. We've had some really, really cool people pass through the doors of the church over the years. And we've had a few people that have left disgruntled and upset and mad and whatever. That's happened. Sometimes they were people that were very close to me and to Lori. But that is a rare thing. And it's something that happens to everybody. Early on, there was a couple here. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but people that Lori and I had known for years and we got to be very close to in the first few years of the ministry. Uh, one, one of the people at that point in time when I would have told you was one of my very closest friends. She said, his, his, his wife said something one time that, let me tell you, I love her to death. But it made me cringe. She said, I think the pastors are conduits to God. Please don't believe that.
please understand something. Some ways my life is different than yours, but in a lot of ways, most ways, my life looks very much like your life looks. Reality is the Holy Spirit is the conduit to God. Not you or me. The only thing that God asks of each one of us is faithfulness. As he has shown faithfulness to us over and over and over and over and over again. Faithfulness to him. Faithfulness to our calling. Why is the gospel not sweeping across the earth today like a raging fire? Do you think it's because we don't have enough pastors, teachers? Or could you come up with some other explanation? Faithfulness, the hallmark of Paul's ministry. Not taking the easy road, taking the very difficult road. And trusting God every step of the way. even to the point of death. Paul will die for his faith. He will pay the ultimate price for his faith. It's just not time yet. God has more for him to do. God has more for me to do. God has more for you to do. That is why we're here.